Psalm 133 says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows His blessing, even life forevermore. We've come to the end of our series of Bible studies on some psalms today. This will be our last one of the series. And I think this psalm, Psalm 133, serves as a fitting end to this study, especially when coupled together with the study of Psalm 150, which we looked at last time. Jesus, He taught in Mark Chapter 12, verse 30, that the greatest commandment is this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. In Psalm 150, if you were here last week, you'll remember that it's about praising the Lord, which is an expression of loving God. In that same passage from Mark's Gospel, Jesus then taught that the second most important commandment is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Psalm 133 is about unity and fellowship among the people of God, which is an expression of loving one another. So we see how Psalm 150 and Psalm 133 are coupled together in a beautiful way through this teaching of Jesus on the first and the second greatest commandments. So if you have your Bible, flip over to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. David is credited as the author of this psalm. This psalm is one of the Songs of Ascents, which are a group of psalms, Psalms 120 through 134, which were sung by the Jewish people as they made their way up the mountain passes to the city of Jerusalem and to the temple for the annual feast. They were ascending the mountain to meet with the Lord. As with most of the Psalms, though, we're not told the circumstances that inspired the writing of this Psalm. However, David's life was marked by tremendous conflict and division, which I am sure must have provided some inspiration for this psalm about unity among God's people. See, people who have suffered through the pain of conflict and division, they have a deep appreciation for unity and fellowship, having known the awfulness of its absence. Some of the conflicts and divisions which loomed large in David's life included just as a way of reminder for those of you who may not have uh, you know, a deep recall of all the details of David's life. But first, the years that he spent living as a fugitive, running and hiding from King Saul, who was intent on killing him. There were the many years he spent battling the Philistines and other enemy nations that surrounded Israel. There was the conflict within the nation of Israel itself following the death of King Saul, The tribe of Judah recognized David at that point as their king, but the rest of the Israelite tribes, they recognized another man as their king. And then years of conflict and civil war ensued between the tribes before David was finally recognized as the king over all of Israel. There was the internal 
conflict within David's own family that took place following his infidelity with Bathsheba. His son Amnon raped his daughter Tamar, and then his son Absalom killed Amnon for what he had done to their sister. Absalom's conspiracy against his father David, leading a rebellion against him, driving David out of the royal city, humiliating him in public, and then seeking to actually kill him. And then David's son Absalom being killed by the commander of David's army, who went against a direct order by David to spare his son's life. There was a conflict within the ranks of David's own men, all part of this, who questioned his leadership decisions. We also know David faced conflict within his own soul based on the Psalms that describe the agony of that experience that he went through again and again. David knew a tremendous amount of conflict and division in his life. The pain and the suffering that was brought on by all of it, that made him especially appreciative of the blessing of unity and fellowship. As already mentioned, too, in Psalm 133, it's one of the songs of ascents which the Jewish people would sing on their way up the mountain passes to Jerusalem when they would gather for these annual feasts. These annual feasts brought Jewish people together from all over the world as they made this pilgrimage to Jerusalem and to the temple. Different tribes, different walks of life, various social strata and local cultures, all of these people would converge at this one place. And this psalm, it celebrates this beautiful unity and fellowship that these people shared with each other as they gathered to worship the Lord. In this short psalm of only three verses, we have one of the most beautiful tributes to unity and fellowship among the people of God, found anywhere in the Bible. So in verse 1 of this psalm, it says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is good. The word translated good is to be understood in the widest possible sense of this word good. It is beautiful. It is awesome. It's desirable. It's something to be sought after. It's pleasant. The word translated pleasant, it could also be translated as Lovely, sweet, delightful, wonderful. It's good, it's beautiful, awesome, pleasant, lovely, sweet, delightful to be sought after when there is unity among God's people. Unity, that word unity. Unity, it's an idea that is talked about a lot in our society right now, isn't it? But it's not something that we are seeing a lot of in our society. We live in a deeply divided country, which is of great concern to all of us. We pray for God's mercy on our country. I can't see how we will ever find our way out of all of this mess without Him. The unity we're talking about today, though, is unity among God's people. Unity in the church. Unity among the followers of Jesus Christ. Unity in the body of Christ. Unity doesn't mean uniformity, though. Unity within the body of Christ does not mean that our individual distinctives are to be stamped out. Unity doesn't mean that we are to become a single, homogenized mass of sameness. Quite the contrary is the case, actually. We're to use our unique differences, perspectives, 
insights, strengths, abilities, passions, interests, talents, gifts to serve one another. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But seeking self-interest kills unity. Seeking others' interests builds unity. Well, after making this declaration in the first verse, David then illustrates in the next two verses the goodness and the pleasantness of true unity and fellowship among God's people. In verse 2, the psalm says, It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. When we first hear these or read, when we first read this verse, we might not think of it as being such a good thing to have oil poured on our head and have it run down over our cheeks and beard and down onto our neck and under the collar of our garment. This is not a familiar experience for us in our time and culture. It's not something that we do for pleasure. But let me assure you that it was awesome in that day and culture. The aroma of this oil, its symbolic meaning, its comfort, it would all fill their hearts with overwhelming gladness. The formula for this special anointing oil, which was used to anoint the various articles used in the temple worship and then put on the priest like Aaron, is given over in Exodus chapter 30, verse 22 through 25. It tells us there what the recipe was for this oil. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels, of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant calamus, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hen of olive oil. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. That's a funny word for me to say this morning. Perfumer. There you go. Say it with me. Perfumer. It will be a sacred anointing oil. Essential oil diffusers are a thing these days. Maybe you've got one. Some of you who are into that sort of thing, you may recognize, actually, some of these essential oils that are mentioned here. Myrrh, cinnamon, calamus, cassia. This blended oil, it had this wonderful, sweet aroma. Try to imagine having this delicious, fragrant oil poured over your head with the aroma filling everything around, spilling down over your cheeks and onto the collar of your garment. The unity and the fellowship the people of God are to have with each other is to be a wonderful, pleasant, sacred thing like this oil that was used to anoint the Lord's priests. Anointing oil in the Old Testament carried a number of symbolic images. The oil was an image of gladness and joy. Our unity and fellowship with each other is to be a joyful thing. The oil was an image of comfort and blessing. Our unity and fellowship with each other is to be a comfort and a blessing 
to us. The oil was an image of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Our unity and fellowship with each other is to have the presence of the Holy Spirit. The oil was a symbol of consecration, of being set apart as holy to serve the Lord. And our unity and fellowship with each other is to be something that glorifies the Lord. It's to be a holy, consecrated thing in that sense. As the sweet smell of this oil filled the air with a sense of God's goodness, so the sweetness of our unity and fellowship with each other should fill the world around us with a sense of the Lord's goodness. Verse 3 of the psalm says, It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in the region of Israel. It's a little over 9,200 feet high. Mount Hermon is actually today located in modern-day Syria with its southern slope extending down into the Israel-occupied portion of the Golan Heights. But Mount Hermon is proverbially known I'm having a hard time making this mouth of mine obey me today. Mount Hermon is proverbially known for its perpetually snow-covered peaks. There's actually a ski resort on Mount Hermon. But one of its nicknames is Mountain of Snow because of the snow caps that are always present there. The Mount Hermon mountain range is the greatest hydrologic resource in that whole area. Because of the height of these mountains, they capture the tremendous amount of precipitation that comes across there, which then provides this nourishing water that provides for all of that area. Otherwise, it would be this dry, parched desert. Mount Hermon is an important source of refreshment and water for all of that area. Mount Zion, on the other hand, it's more of a hill, especially in comparison to the ground, the, the Grand Mount Hermon. The, the name Mount Zion was used to refer to the hill that the temple was on. Sometimes the city of Jerusalem was itself called Mount Zion. All of that area was referred to at Mount Zion in one way or another. When the people of God, they live together in unity, it's like the dew of giant Mount Hermon falling on Zion. Unity and fellowship among the people of God should be like the refreshing, nourishing, invigorating, life-giving rain of Mount Hermon falling upon the parched, thirsty land of Zion. The second part of verse 3 says, For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. When we, t- when we dwell together in unity with each other, the Lord bestows his blessing upon us. Genuine unity and fellowship among the people of God is something that God gives us as we seek relationship with him. Derek Kidner, one of the commentators of this particular psalm, writes this. He says, True unity, like all good gifts, 
is from above, bestowed rather than contrived. A blessing far more than an achievement. Something that God gives us. The church is called the body of Christ, and the Apostle Paul uses the analogy of a human body to teach us how the church is supposed to function as a unified whole, even though we are made up of many different parts. Let's flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for a moment. Begin reading in verse 4, Paul's writing here, and he says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. All the spiritual gifts, talents, abilities, interests, opportunities, perspectives, backgrounds, and other distinctives that each of us have are given to us by God for the common good. For the common good. Not for our own selfish pleasure and gain, but for the common good of the body of Christ, the church. If we keep reading uh, in verse 14 of that same chapter, it says, Even so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. <clears throat> the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Some of the main ideas that come from this passage that I want to mention in our study this morning are these. First is, we're all members of the one body, the church, and we each have a part to play in it. Christian, Jesus follower, our primary call in the church is to contribute, not to consume. Our primary call in the church is to be a contributor, not just a consumer. Are you a consumer or a contributor? Do you take and take and take, but rarely, if ever, pitch in and contribute? Is the church here mainly to serve you, or are you here to serve? 
Are you looking to see what you can get out of the church? Or are you looking to see how you can add value to the church? It's sad that many people treat church kind of like it's a show you go to, to watch, and then you judge it on its entertainment value, and then you leave. That is not what church is. We need each other. When any one of us is not showing up, doing our part, the body, the church is incomplete and it suffers. Our participation in the body, the church, is not optional, it's essential. We're not all the same. Nor should we try to be the same. The Lord has given each of us a unique expression of Christ that is to be offered in service to the body, the church. We're connected to one another. When one of us suffers, we all suffer. When one of us succeeds, we all succeed. When one is honored, we are all honored. There must not be division between the parts of the body, the church. We must be united. Unity is not the same as uniformity. We are all different, but we must not let our differences divide us. There is something more important here than you and me and our own personal interests. We're part of one body, the body of Christ. Now in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, Paul, he talks about the importance of love in the body of Christ, the church. You, you may be thinking, you know, I don't know how I can love some of these people. I mean, I don't even like them, much less love them. I want to say that that attitude, that kind of outlook, might work outside of the body of Christ, outside of the community of the followers of Jesus, outside of the church, out in the rest of society, but it doesn't work in here, in the church. The love that Paul's talking about is not an emotional love, it's not a love of feelings. It's an act of the will. It is a choice that we make. We choose to love each other. We choose to love these other people. We act in a loving way toward these people. Regardless of what our feelings might be, we seek others' good over our own. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. We love each other by serving each other, by caring for each other, looking out for each other, putting each other before ourselves. That's the call that Jesus has in our life as his followers, as members of his body. We're commanded to stick together. Over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, it says this, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. 
What are we to be doing for one another? Spurring one another on, it says, toward love and good deeds. Motivating one another. We're to consider how to motivate each other. Give thought to how we can help each other follow Jesus better. Loving people and doing good deeds. We're to encourage one another. This world beats us up. We don't need to beat each other up. Let's pick each other up rather than knocking each other down. It's part of our sinful, natural self to point out other shortcomings and failures. It's the nature of Christ to seek to build others up. It's easy to knock someone down. It doesn't take any creativity or effort to do that at all. It just comes natural for us. That's easy. But to find effective and meaningful ways to encourage each other, that takes effort. That takes creativity sometimes. Let's be the helping hand and the listening ear and the thoughtful voice of encouragement to one another. I don't know about you, but some of the comments that I see people post on social media, it's disturbing. The viciousness that people have toward each other language they use, the stuff they say, that's not the kind of behavior that we want to emulate. That's the behavior of the world. That's not the behavior of Jesus. It says, all the more, do this all the more as you see the day approaching. The second coming of Jesus Christ is nearer now than it has ever been before in history. We need to help each other now more than ever before. Because Jesus Christ is coming. The day is fast approaching, it tells us. It says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It could be a challenge to gather together and live in community with each other before this pandemic. Now with the gathering restrictions that we're living under, the challenge is even greater but we need to do it. In fact, it could be argued that we need to do it now more than ever. Now, that doesn't mean that we should ignore the restrictions that have been put in place to help mitigate the spread of this virus. Those restrictions should be followed with diligence. It means that we need to continue to seek ways of staying connected while respecting those restrictions. It'll take some creativity and extra commitment, learning and using technologies that we're maybe not familiar with or have ever used before. It's going to take making changes in our schedules and all kinds of other things. It may not be ideal, but it's possible. We need to do it. Call people, text people, video chat with people, meet up with people in responsible ways. Do whatever you have to to keep making connections. That's what we're called to do. Don't stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It reminds me of the motto used among the characters of the TV show Lost. Now, in case you are not familiar with the show Lost, it told the story of the survivors of an airline that crash-landed on a mysterious island somewhere out in the South Pacific Ocean. 
The survivors of the crash had a little saying to remind themselves of the importance of sticking together. The saying was, live together, die alone. Live together, die alone. If they stayed together, they would survive. If they separated themselves and sought to go it alone, they would die. They needed each other if they were going to survive. And the same is true for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Together we will survive and thrive. Alone we will die. Live together, die alone. Well, collecting together some of the key ideas which we have talked about today in order for unity to happen, the following is needed for us. And really for unity in any situation, whether it's marriage, a country, a city, some group of people, but especially in the church, versus unity is built on a foundation of selflessness. Unity is built on a foundation of selflessness. Unity can't happen when everyone is out for their self. We must be selfless, looking out for each other, serving each other, putting our own interests to the side for the sake of others. Second, Unity relies on a common shared commitment to an overarching ideal, vision, purpose, mission. Do you know what a BHAG is? B-H-A-G, BHAG. BHAG stands for Big, Hairy, Audacious Goal. It's a term coined by the author of such books as from Good to Great and Built to Last, Jim Collins, who researches what makes businesses and organizations succeed and fail. And in his research, he discovered, after looking at hundreds of different businesses and organizations that were great successes versus those that failed, he discovered that for an organization to really thrive, it needs a BHAG a big, hairy, audacious goal. And that BHAG is what unites the organization together and gives it energy to push forward. Well, for us as Christians, our BHAG ought to be obvious. It's the call and the mission of Jesus Christ. Our overarching shared commitment is Jesus Christ. He's what unites us. Our identity is first as a follower of Jesus Christ and only second as whatever else we may be, politically, culturally, socially, or whatever. See, I, I'm not sticking with you because we have the same political views or are of the same color or of the same culture or of the same age group or have similar education backgrounds or grew up in the same neighborhood or have similar interests or whatever else. I'm sticking with you because we both believe Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins and came back to life on the third day and we have now committed ourselves to following Him. I'm sticking with you because we have both been brought to life spiritually by the same Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. That does not imply 
that other things are unimportant, though. In fact, out of love for you, I should respect other things about you, like your culture and your color and your background, more than I might otherwise, because that is part of the call of Jesus on my life, to put the interests of others before my own. Third, unity requires regular maintenance. Unity is not a one-and-done kind of thing. It's a living organism kind of thing that needs to be continually cared for. We need to continue to invest time and energy into our fellowship with one another for it to remain strong and healthy. We must not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Fourth and finally, unity in its purest, most life-producing form is a gift from the Lord. Unity among God's people is evidence of the Holy Spirit's good work in us. And so we pray, Lord, bless us with the gift of unity. Lord, give us unity among us. That's what Jesus himself prayed for us. He prayed that we would be one and brought to complete unity in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. So we echo Jesus' prayer for us. Lord, make us one. Give us complete unity among us as your people. In Jesus' name. And Father, we do indeed pray for that. We ask that you would bless us with unity, even as the world around us, the society around us, the country around us is at each other's throats over countless things. It doesn't seem like any topic is safe territory anymore, Lord. The division, the hatred, the anger, We pray, God, that you would give us, your people, unity among us. Bless us with that wonderful gift, Lord, from you. May we seek to be selfless, that we would give ourselves to one another, that we would be committed to this overarching call as the people of God, as the followers of Jesus. Lord, that we would expend effort to seek after and maintain our fellowship and unity with one another. We would commit ourselves to you and to each other. Father, make these things so in us. In Jesus' name. Amen.